Today's reading is from Judges chapter 2. Last week we left off um, after verse 5, so we're starting with verse 6. And I got a lot of names to say, just give me grace. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Heraz in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that, the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, their God, of the fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asherahs. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to the raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord left to test all the Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidians, the Hevites living in Lebanon, Mount mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. So here we are in the second week of our Stroll through the book of Judges. Now, why the book of Judges, you may ask. And if you ask that, that's a good question because the book of Judges is horrifically violent. It's filled with all sorts of people, at least the majority of the people in it. After you get past chapter 4, are not great examples for us to follow. 
uh, it's horrible and bloody and it's sad. It's a heavy book. It would not be appropriate bedtime reading for your three or four year old, to say the least. But Judges is really about us in many ways. The people during this time were being invaded by messages from those around them who told them that God was not what they needed, or at least God was not all they needed. See, the people of Israel had just left Egypt not too long before, and they had spent 40 years wandering in the desert, and finally after that unfaithful generation had perished in the desert, the new generation that rose up left and they came to the promised land. Moses exits the story and Joshua becomes their leader. And Joshua and the Israelites cross the Jordan River and God stops up the Jordan River. He parts the river just the way he parted the Red Sea when the Israelites left Egypt and he brings them into the promised land. And we start off with two significant confrontations with the Canaanites. And in the first one, Joshua and all his people, they circle the city of Jericho every day. And after a week, they blow their trumpets. And what we read is that God takes down the walls of Jericho. And so this great fortified city in the land of Canaan is destroyed not by anything that the Israelites did, but by the power of God. And so this generation goes through the land of Canaan and the book of Joshua is about the battles that they win, the land that they take. And the book of Judges is about what happens next. And the book starts off by saying something like, and the next generation did not know the Lord. And I think to myself, that's crazy, right? Some of these people, they might have been kids actually marching around the city of Jericho. They've seen what God can do for them. But one of the recurring themes through this book is the book says over and over again, the next generation did not know the Lord. You see, they were enticed into other lifestyles. These things that the Canaanites did, they probably looked intelligent or entertaining, safe, enlightened, promising. I think it actually doesn't look too much different than our society today and all of the different things, all the different ways that we're told that we can succeed, all the different philosophies that there are out there, they often look good as they did to the Israelites. So they get into the promised land, the Joshua generation dies, and the next generation looks around them, and there's all these Canaanite voices in their ear. And they say things like, if you want to be successful the way that we've been successful... And we shouldn't think that the Canaanites weren't successful in many ways. What does the Bible tell us about the promised land? The people's own description was that it flowed with milk and honey. What that means is that it was a pretty great place. It had everything that the Israelites were looking for. And the Canaanites were the ones who built it. They were the ones who plowed the fields before the Israelites got there. They grew the vineyards. And the Canaanites started talking in their ear, and they say, hey, if you want to be successful that, the way that we've been successful, we'll tell you how to do it. And the Israelites are now caught. Do we do what, the, what this evidence is showing? These people, they say they, they sacrifice their sons to Molech, but it provides them good harvest. These people partake in these terrible, idolatrous 
religious practices, but they say it, it yields for them lots of children and strong families. And they have this land that's amazing, these harvests that are bountiful. So is it possible that what they're saying is true? And they have lots of children. They're fruitful in what they do. Their family units are strong. Their military is strong. Is what they're saying correct? And then on the other hand, they have God. And there's also evidence for God. They say, look, our, our forefathers told us these stories about what happened. Maybe there were some who left who saw it firsthand themselves. And so they're caught between things that they think might both be true. And what do they do? I think for them, because they saw that perhaps both things could be true, they wanted to have one foot in two different buckets. Sorry, two feet, two different buckets. They wanted to be half in on the way that the Canaanites did it, and they wanted to be half in on the way that God told them to do it. And that, I think, is not dissimilar from us today. It is so easy to say, I want to be part of God's plan. I want to be all in on God's promise. But also, it'd be really great to have a job that paid a ton of money. It'd be really great if everybody knew how great I was and my self-image was just spectacular. It'd be really great if I looked this way or if I acted this way or if I had a lot of power and decision-making ability in my job. It would be really great if I could sort of be half in that world but also come to church every Sunday. And so... What we know from God is he does not want people who are half in. And so the Israelites continually go through this cycle, this cycle of sin. And as a result of sin comes oppression. As a result of oppression and pain comes repentance. God raises up a deliverer for them and brings them back to peace. But after peace, where do they go? They go right back to the sin where they started. And so last week, Greg gave an overview of the book of Judges from sort of historical point of view. This chapter today gives us a, an overview of Judges from a theological point of view. And it tells the story of what, of what this cycle of idolatry was. And so that is what we are going to talk about today. And there's three primary questions I want to answer today. The first is, what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know God? The second is, how do you know when you have idols in your life? And the third is, how do you get rid of idols? So what does it mean to know God? How do you know when you have idols in your life? Perhaps most importantly, how do we get rid of them? Let me ask the Holy Spirit for guidance and open hearts. God, we need you so much. May we not be a people who are divided. God, may we seek you wholeheartedly. God, may we turn away from the things that this world has to offer in lieu of the good things that you have for us. God, give us faith to believe that when we follow you, our lives will be right. Help us, Lord, not to be lured by the things that are not of your kingdom. I pray, God, that you would give me your words today. 
I would pray, God, that you would give us open hearts and understanding. In your name I would pray. Amen. I think a preliminary reading of this, of these verses where it says that the people did not know God. My first thought was, how on earth did they not know God? That seems impossible. It seems impossible that they didn't know God. After all, as soon as things got hard, they knew exactly where to return to, right? How, what does it mean? What does the scripture mean when it says that it does not know God? And so one of the tools that my wife and I often use um, on this this website is you can take the English and turn it into Hebrew and then you can click on the Hebrew word and it'll give you every other reference to that word in the the Bible. So the reference here, the word that was used, the the Jewish word that was used, uh, the the Hebrew word is a word called yada, Y-A-D-A. And it only appears in the Bible a couple of times, but it says the Israelites did not yada God, did not know God. So what does that exactly mean? And one of the places where it's used um, is in the book of Samuel. So Samuel, who's the high priest, has two sons. And this is what it says about those sons. Sorry, I said Samuel. I meant Eli. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not yada the Lord. The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now, Eli was the high priest of all Israel. And in a people who have really no political centrality, there was no economic leaders, the high priest was the guy. That was it. He's sort of like the king and the high priest. He was the uh, cabinet. He was everything all in one person, which means that his two boys were the ultimate pastor's kids, right? They were raised in the religion. Everything that they did had some sort of religious activity to it. And we know that because that was true of their father. Their father probably spent every single day somewhere in or around the temple, the the tent. Um, They knew all there was to know about Hebrew tradition. They knew the stories. They knew the scriptures. They were taught how to read. They understood what was going on. But the Bible tells us they did not know the Lord. What that means was not that they didn't know academically about who God was. It means that they didn't accept God for who he was. They didn't believe God was their king. They didn't want him to be part of, his, of their life. And the story about them is quite sad. They did all sorts of improper things surrounding the tent And eventually they end up going where they should not, and God's presence consumed them in fire. They did not know the Lord. There's one other place I'd like to tell you about briefly. King David, upon his deathbed, is talking to his son Solomon, and he says to his son Solomon, I want to impart some wisdom on you. And the the thing that he told him he needed to do, he needs to yada God. So Solomon, if you want to be successful, you need to know the Lord. Not just know him, know things about him. It's not just reading the scripture to understand God's attributes. It's not just knowing the holidays and their significance. It's not just going and offering sacrifices or saying prayers. It's knowing God. It's being friends with God. It's understanding your role in his plan. It's knowing the relationship with God as creator 
and us as created. But the Israelites, as I said before, they got caught trying to balance two opposing lives. And let me read real quickly from Judges chapter 10. Now, I just condemned one of my friends for speaking from my verses. But as it turns out, I am also speaking from Judges chapter 10. So I pirate this with permission, as the other elders should. So Judges chapter 10, starting in verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. So there's the first two of this cycle, the sin, and then right after it, oppression, and now here comes the repentance. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you. And you cried out to me and I saved you from your hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. God will not tolerate our diversion from him. And yet, the Bible also clearly tells us that he will be faithful to us even when we are faithless to him. The people of Israel return to the Lord. And this repentance and knowing God come hand in hand. They're together. When we repent, what we're saying is, you're right and I'm wrong. You're the king and I'm the servant. I will yield my life to what you're looking for. That is part of knowing, perhaps the part of knowing God. And God continues in his faithfulness to them, even as they are not. So question two, how do you know when you have idols in your life? I wrote a list of some idols that I could think of. Most idols traverse time and culture. So the list that I came up with, security, wealth, power over others, self-image, Comfort, knowledge, status, health. By the way, if you pretend to like quinoa, health may be an idol of yours. <laughs> Success and endeavors that are important to you, romantic love, sex, addiction, control. There's even some things that are, are relatively good things. Family can become an idol. For all you parents out there who see your status as a good parent or success of your children, those things can easily become idols. Generosity can become an idol. We're told a story in the book of Acts about a man who is generous and he gives away part of what he had but told everybody it was all of what he had. Why? He wasn't asked to give away everything. He wasn't actually asked to give away anything. But his, the idol of how people saw him in his generosity 
became a significant problem. All these things can become idols. Even perhaps the perfectly clean house, which, by the way, if you've ever been to my house, you know that my wife and I have successfully kept our children from this idol. But these things can easily divert us away from God. Almost anything, even those things that are good or bad, can be turned into an idol. So three things that I've noticed in my life when things have become idols. The first is that when things are going well, I hardly ever acknowledge God. When there's idols in my life, it's really hard to acknowledge God. There's this cycle that I think we go through, not dissimilar from the uh, Israelites. Um, But when things are going well, we hardly acknowledge God. But conversely, when things are going bad, we're on our knees right away. God, I need your help. I'd like you to relieve these consequences from me. But we're not often willing to actually give up that idol. Now, God, I know that this is bad, and I want you to help me get through it, but we're not really willing to put away the idols permanently. And the Israelites did this. Now, in the verses that I just read, they said that they put away their idols. But doesn't every generation through the Old Testament end up getting them back? How many times do we read through the Old Testament that the Israelites repented, but they didn't cut down the Asherah poles? These were places where the people went to worship and offer sacrifices. And generation after generation, they repent. They say, we're not going to do this anymore, but they leave the idol in place. They never really get over it. And so I would ask this. Does your prayer life mostly consist of requests to God, or does it mostly consist of praise? In your own prayer life, does it mostly exist of, of does it, is it mostly requests of God, or is it mostly of praise? Do we spend time praising God for who he is, that is the creator of our world? Maybe even asking ways in which we can help others, or is it just about what we need? If your prayer life is mostly about asking for things, that says something Now, God tells us to ask for things, and asking for things is good. But if we spend our entire prayer life just praising God for who he is, it wouldn't be enough praise. My last question before we go to communion, how do we get rid of idols? And this is where I want to spend, well, I don't want to worry anybody, but this is where I want to spend most of my time. But I promise we're more than halfway through. See, idols idols are really hard to get rid of. Why are they hard to get rid of? We look back at the Israelites, and it's easy using historical snobbery to say, we're smart, and they're obviously pretty stupid because it's so easy to see where they went wrong. And, of course, we would never make the same mistake of burning our children alive to worship another god. So we can just go check that one off our boxes. We don't have any idols. But real idols, the ones that we suffer with in 21st century America, are actually really, really hard to get rid of. And the reason is, is because even if we know, say from an academic point of view, that these idols aren't good for us, we still crave it, don't we? We still 
want to get the promotion, perhaps so badly that we're willing to cheat or lie, we're willing to take other people's work as our own. We still want to have a self-image that others exalt as successful. There's so many things that we want. Sometimes they don't seem all that opposed to what God has, but at the root of many of these things are attributes of things that are directly opposed to God. Sometimes it's just that living without it seems too hard. I was put in a situation a couple of weeks ago where a lie would have pasted over somebody else's sin towards me and the whole thing could have gone away in a second. If I had just lied and said somebody else was present during this conversation, the entire situation would have disappeared. And when my attorney said to me, you know, do you have something to back up this conversation where this person admitted guilt? Right away I want to be like, yep, because I could have come up with one of a hundred people who would have gladly come and defended me and lied with me and said, yes, I was there and I heard that. And I was tempted as much as I feel like I've been tempted in years to say, yes, somebody was there with me. Somebody heard it. And I actually paused to the point where my attorney thought that my cell phone had, had stopped working and he asked the question again. I said, no, no one else was there. No one else heard it. And as, as I was reflecting on it on my way home from work, I thought of all the times when people didn't believe that God could win for them. Because I believe that when I step out of the moral bounds, God says, listen, Chris, you think you can win? Then fine, go win. You're on your own. You're going to win through lying? Good luck to you. What does God tell the people in Israel, you serve those other gods, let them save you. See if Molech will come to your defense now. I could imagine God saying, he should. You burned your firstborn son alive. Where is he now? Would God not say the same things to us? Hey, if you're going to lie to take care of this situation, if you're going to steal to get what you need, if you're going to do all these other things instead of being faithful to me, then go do that. See if it works out for you. Idols are things that we often feel like we desperately need and want. And that is why they are hard to get away from. But three things that I've noticed in my life that helps me turn from idols. The first is being thankful. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So does anybody here not want to be part of the kingdom of heaven? I'm assuming that the answer is no. Everybody does want to be. That's part of why we're here today. Um, so being poor in spirit, it would seem, would be a good thing for all of us. What does being poor in spirit mean? I think being poor in spirit means recognizing God for who he is and what our place is in that I'm so thankful that I can be part of God's kingdom. See, seeing ourselves rightly in relationship to God is part of the work of destroying 
idols. So one of the things that I try to do on my 35-minute trip to work, at least one or two times a week, something I was challenged to do and now I've taken on, is make a list of things that I'm thankful for. When somebody, brought, when somebody suggested this to me, I thought, okay, so what do I do with the other 34 minutes of my, of my ride to work? Because you can, I mean, you can rattle off 10 things you're thankful for in just a few seconds. So I hope, hopefully I wasn't being a spoiled brat, thinking I only had a couple little things. But I honestly didn't think I could think of perhaps several thousand things over that time period. But as I started naming the things that I'm thankful for, I was reminded of so many hundreds of people throughout my life who have been a blessing. So many hundreds of things, both good and bad, that have happened to me that have helped develop the person that I am today. I started thinking about all those things, the coaches, the wins, the losses, the, the good days, the bad days. All of those things came flooding back to me. Thinking about how thankful I was that God has gotten me to this point helps put in stark contrast those idols that are perpetually saying, let me in, let me in. The second thing that I think helps us get rid of our idols is repentance. I know repentance in our culture today is really not a great word, right? Because it means that we're, we're acknowledging that we're wrong. It means that we're not really autonomous anymore. And those things are super important in our culture. But repentance really helps break down idols. But before I talk about repentance, let me just say this. Uh, I'm assuming that there's at least one person out here who feels the way that I do. Sometimes I'm not even ready to repent. There are some things that I engage in and I say, God, I don't feel right asking for repentance because I'm not sure that I want to give it up right now. And so I take a lesson out of Mark chapter 9. In it, there's this father, and he has a son. And he comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, help my son. He says, if there's anything you can do, please do it. And Jesus says, if? If there's anything I can do? Jesus says, have faith and believe. And what's the guy's response? He says, I believe. But help my unbelief. And so there are times when I will physically get on my knees and I'll say, God, I repent and also help me to feel like I need repentance. Sometimes I'm not even ready to repent with a clear conscience. But what does Jesus say? In Luke chapter 7, Jesus tells us a story about someone who's ready to repent and someone who is not. So Jesus is at a Pharisee's house by the name of Simon. And while he's sitting there with all Simon's good Pharisee buddies, this woman breaks into the house and she brings a jar of perfume with her. And she starts to cry. And she rubs Jesus' feet with the perfume, with her tears, with her hair. And Simon thinks to himself, well, undoubtedly, this doesn't look good for my house. I probably, you know, he probably says, I hope nobody saw her come in. And if Jesus only knew who this woman was, he would not let her touch him. And Jesus says, Simon, let's have a talk. 
Now, Simon should have known right away from the earlier stories of Jesus that when Jesus said, let's have a talk, he was in some trouble. But he says, all right, teacher, what do you have to say? Jesus says, this woman has come here ready to repent. And he tells a story about two people. One person has a very small debt and one person has a very large debt. And the debtor forgives both. And he says, Simon, which one is going to love the debtor more? Simon says, well, the person with the large debt is going to love the person more. Because this person was forgiven of more stuff than the person with the small debt. Jesus says, exactly. Exactly. He says, you may live righteously, more righteously than this woman. But this idol in your life, the idol of looking good in front of others, the idol of self-justification, the idol of propriety, they're holding you back. But this woman, nothing's holding her back. She's come here ready to repent. Repentance helps break down idols. And lastly, crying out to God. If we feel trapped by sin, addicted to sin, if it feels both too heavy to throw off, yet too important to let go, cry out to God. You see, we're not going to succeed merely by trying harder. When our hearts are captured by idols of this world, it's not just a matter of making an academic choice to not do that. They're captured for good reason. They're captured because it's hard not to be captured. We need to replace them with a stronger devotion. We need to replace them with a greater worship. You see, by seeing God's unrelenting, costly, sacrificial, steadfast love, we can unseat the idols of this world and follow Jesus. Crying out in repentance of sin, we are told time and again is a very powerful way to talk with God. How many times do we read that the Israelites cried out to the Lord? And although saying quickly, God, forgive me for and filling in the blank is effective, it is not as effective is crying out with our soul to the Lord. I was in my early 20s the first time I tried that. And I have to say, it makes a difference. It really makes a difference. The bondage that we are put in, God wants to release us from. Crying out to God can break its power. Let me pray before we give a preamble for communion. God, I would pray that you would give us the strength and power to break the powers down around us. God, give us a spirit of repentance. God, help us to be able to identify the idols in our life correctly and to turn from them. Holy Spirit, we cannot do it without you. I would pray, God, that you would give us the courage to part with them. God, give us the strength to part with them. We can't do it alone. God, thank you for this church.
for the host of saints that are with us. God, may we use each other as teammates in this life. God, may we be accountable to each other for our sin and for our growth. God, may we as a church body please you in what we do, what we say, how we live. God, may we be a light to the community around us. In your name I would pray. Amen.